Hello, welcome, thanks for listening. This is a history of Indonesia. Before we get too far into the modern period, I thought I'd do two related episodes. One focused on an outside power and how it affected Indonesia. And next episode, I'll zoom in on some specific local histories that offer some alternative views of the archipelago. Looking at Indonesia from the perspective of the modern borders can disguise intricate connections that often existed throughout the region. A simple change in perspective can make quite a difference to how we imagine the past. Java and the Straits of Malacca have made regular appearances while we've been ploughing through Indonesia's early history. Much of Indonesia's past can be understood by focusing on these two areas. But if I had to pick a key thing that I've learned from this project so far, it would be that simply how we imagine an area affects the way it's understood. And this goes for the people acting in their own time and space as well. Historical actors are bound by the world they can imagine. Just imagining an area as, say, a maritime zone where the sea connects rather than divides gives a fresh perspective on how communities interact. Rather than seeing Java as a fertile farming centre, which it is, you can see the Java Sea network of Java, Madura, Bali, Sulawesi and all the way to New Guinea as an integrated network. Once you've noticed these connections in a place like Indonesia, it can give you a new way of looking at other parts of the world. I haven't studied much British history, but from pop culture and general knowledge, I know the English Channel has acted as a moat of sorts protecting the British on many occasions over their history. This is the sea as a barrier. But if you look at British history through the lens of the North Sea, it reveals a network that helps explain many of the changes in Britain's makeup, whether that be language, culture, religion or people. So these zones or networks can be imagined as interdependent communities. Once they're thought of in this way, not just by us looking back, but by the people living in these areas in their own time, the strategic and economic calculus changes dramatically. Last episode, we saw Majapahit reimagine East Java's interests to include much of the archipelago in the 1300s. 20th century Indonesia was imagined on the back of a global trend towards nationalism. The rediscovery of Srivijaya, as well as other stories of former greatness, gave Indonesian nationalists a novel way to imagine the archipelago and consider a future free from Dutch colonial rule. Of course, the potential of these networks always exists, but it's only occasionally where the circumstances line up for powerful men to take advantage of the possibilities. Occasionally, ambitious men's belief that they can shape their destiny leads to pioneering discoveries or maybe substantial overreach, sometimes both. Think about the miscalculation of the circumference of the planet by Renaissance Europeans. The distance they imagined they needed to travel to arrive in Asia. If the world was round, as was becoming increasingly apparent, then Europeans could travel west over the Atlantic and arrive in the Far East, bypassing the middlemen of the Silk Road. This misconception of distance led to Europeans venturing out and stumbling on the New World arguably the most significant event in human history. Once the New World was imagined, not as the fabled East Indies, the world that Marco Polo and other travellers had depicted for Europeans, 
but as a vast new landmass of its own. The way the world was imagined changed forever. This discovery, still a century away in our timeline, casts a long shadow over the events we'll cover today. In the early 1400s, a Chinese emperor reimagined his world and extended the established tribute system across the oceans. At the start of his rule, China's Yongli Emperor probably wasn't even aware of Malacca's existence. During his rule, though, he elevated the status of Malacca and its rulers. He named its ruler, Paramesfara, a king, putting him on an equal footing to his much bigger neighbours in Java and Siam. Over the next two decades, the relationship deepened. Each of Malacca's first three kings visited the royal court in Nanjing and then Beijing to pay their respects to the emperor. But we should start back in the late 1300s, as Hayam Wuruk was settling in as Majapahit's ruler and Paramesfara was still struggling to revive Malay fortunes in the Straits. At this time, the Ming were busy expelling the Mongols from China. Officially, the Ming dynasty began back in 1368, but these things never run smoothly. In China's southwest Yunnan province, loyalists to the old regime still held sway. In fact, the area was where Kublai Khan had first tasted military victory, more than a hundred years earlier. So the established elite had a long history as Mongol vassals. When the Ming finally reached Yunnan province and defeated the Mongol forces more than a decade later, an 11-year-old boy was one of the many captured and condemned to a life of servitude. His father and grandfather had both earned the honorific Haji, designating the fact that they had completed the religious pilgrimage to Mecca. They were respected leaders of the Chinese Muslim community. The boy's father was the local Muslim governor and had died in the battle against the Ming. His son's life would be very different to his own. The boy was castrated and sent to Beijing to serve as a eunuch in the court of Prince Zhu Di. This was the less-than-ideal start to life of today's central character, Admiral Zheng He, a legend in China, but also in the maritime Muslim world of Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean. For us, Zheng He's voyages mark the peak of official Chinese adventurism in Southeast Asia. With the overland Silk Road routes cut off by the retreating hostile steppe kingdoms, the Chinese were compelled to rely on the maritime routes more than ever if they wanted to continue trading with the outside world. So today we'll focus on the epic journeys coordinated by Zheng He. They're often seen as somewhat of an anomaly, a brief period when China looked outward, met its potential and played a leadership role in Southeast Asia. Of course, we know that China had been a significant player for centuries. Whether it was state-sanctioned or not, China's economic gravity always meant the Chinese were crucial to the way trade and power flowed through the region. State-controlled trade was viewed as preferable to private trade. State trade resulted in state revenue, whereas private trade was messy and difficult to control. It's hard for us to imagine from our modern perspective, but private trade was almost indistinguishable from smuggling in the eyes of many Chinese officials. But the Chinese had a bit of a bipolar approach to trade. At times when it was out of favour, they tried to disguise it or even prohibit it. Sometimes they even forced coastal communities 
to move their villages inland, just in case the locals were tempted to engage in illegal trade or piracy. Zheng He's treasure fleets are at the other extreme, a time when China sought power and prestige through overseas trade and diplomacy. The voyages are important for all sorts of reasons, whether it's the trade in the blue dye sourced in Hormuz that makes Ming-era porcelain distinctive, or the part they played in elevating Malacca, through to the many diaspora communities the voyages spawned. The impacts on Southeast Asia and into the Indian Ocean are significant. But Zheng He's story is contentious too because, unfortunately, many of the records were destroyed by the succeeding regime who, once again, swung back and had a very different view of China's relationship to the world beyond its borders. It's unfortunate because it's allowed all sorts of stories about Zheng He and his voyages to perpetuate due to a lack of evidence. It hasn't done Zheng He's legend any harm, though. He's been presented as everything from warrior, liberator, peacekeeper, proselytizer, national hero and international statesman, just to name a few of the claims attached to him. Chinese patriots often present a very rosy picture of Zheng He's missions. There's no doubt that the voyages were game-changing for the region, and he's held up as a hero in many Southeast Asian and Muslim communities. Historians have seesawed over most parts of the legend. Europeans, with our own myths about the Age of Discovery, found it difficult to believe the reported size of the treasure ships and the scale of the fleets. For Westerners, especially the naval powers that travelled to the Far East, it was inconceivable that the Chinese, if they really had been so dominant, would abandon their superior position voluntarily. So Zheng He's story plays into many histories across the region. There's a lot of layers we could look at, from the local effects, like the rise of Malacca, or more broadly, the voyager's impact on how Islam evolved. There's even a school of thought that these voyagers laid the groundwork for Western colonialism a century later. It'd be nice if all these layers fit together neatly like a set of nested tables, but in reality, they're more often than not competing narratives used to fix Zheng He to a particular cause or community. Breaking history down into the categories of ancient, medieval and modern is always limiting, but in our region the labels are almost meaningless. One of the better frameworks I've come across for organising the history of Southeast Asia that works well for Zheng He's story is to break up the periods into overlapping waves of outside influence. So in this framework there are four waves, an Indian wave, a Chinese wave, a Muslim wave and then a Western wave. This of course downplays the impact of the locals, but I still think it's a useful way to think about the region. We've talked a lot about India's cultural influence and importance in past episodes. And as we've gone through Indonesia's chronology, China's influence has grown, through trade, Buddhism and a growing Chinese diaspora. We're now at the point where the Muslim wave is starting to surge. Zheng He is a central character in both the Chinese and Muslim waves of Southeast Asian history. He is remembered and championed not just by the Chinese, but by many Southeast Asian cultures and Muslim communities. So, back to the young, unfortunate Zheng He, who we find a long way from Southeast Asia. He had ended up in the hands of Zhu Di, a regional prince based in Beijing, 
whose main job was to protect the northern border from the recently defeated Mongols. Zheng He would eventually become an officer in many of these battles, but in his youth, his education continued, which was unusual for someone in his position. By all accounts, he impressed his new master, and over time became a valued member of the court. Zhu Di was one of the many sons of the Ming founder, Emperor Hong Wu. Emperor Hong Wu was, well, quite the pants man. He ended up having about 40 children to various wives and concubines. His eldest son was seen as the obvious and rightful heir to the Ming Empire, but unfortunately he died before his time. The line of succession passed to the next generation, Emperor Hongwu's grandson, leaving many of Emperor Hongwu's other children, including Zhu Di, overlooked while still relatively young. When the new emperor took over as a 21-year-old in 1398, his grip on power was shaky, to say the least. His uncle, Zhu Di, and others in the ruling class soon mounted a rebellion. Within a couple of bloody years, Zheng He found himself not just the loyal servant of a regional prince, but as a trusted insider for the new emperor. So Zhu Di, or the Yongli Emperor, as he is known to history, was a usurper and needed to secure and legitimise his rule. Zheng He's voyages were born out of the need to consolidate the new emperor's position. The deposed emperor's body was never found. This led to all sorts of rumours about whether he was, in fact, actually dead. Some believed he had fled south. Zhu Di is said to have become, understandably, obsessed with the fate of his predecessor. So one of the motivations of Zheng He's voyages was to investigate the possible whereabouts of the former emperor. But I find it hard to believe that this was the central justification of such an expensive endeavour. This wasn't a few ships, this was a fleet. The giant treasure ships were at least four times the size of Columbus's ships. There were also support ships like horse transports and water tankers. All up, there were over 300 vessels. More than 25,000 men travelled on the first voyage, most of them soldiers. What this was not was a voyage of discovery. The trade routes and destinations were known to the Chinese. This endeavour was more like a military parade, a world fair and a massive public works project all wrapped into one. It was the centrepiece of Zhe Di's reshaping of the Ming Empire. He wanted to extend China's influence across the oceans. Why then did the emperor choose Zheng He to lead such an important mission? It seems by this stage he was more than just a wise and trustworthy advisor. The Yongli emperor, more than most Chinese rulers, promoted eunuchs into important positions and expanded their numbers overall. Zheng He was amongst this leadership group of court eunuchs that became a powerful faction in the Chinese bureaucracy. It's not hard to imagine that these eunuchs, often from ethnic minorities, would be more sympathetic to outside cultures than their Confucian rivals in the bureaucracy. Zheng He was a big man by all accounts, with a presence to match. His military record, his Muslim faith and the fact that he probably spoke some Arabic all made him a suitable candidate. One of the Yongli Emperor's first acts in 1402 had been to dispatch diplomats to Southeast Asia. Maybe this mission was when he was fervently trying to track down his predecessor. But there was clearly more going on here. Listen to these two quotes. One from the Yongli Emperor, and the other from his father during his time as Emperor. 
First, the Hongwu Emperor's words from 1397. Quote, At the beginning of our reign, the various nations had relations with China. Their envoys were unending, and the merchants found this convenient. There were nations like Anan, Champa, Cambodia, Siam, Java, Srivijaya, Brunei, and Samudra, a total of 30 nations. But when Hu Weiyong planned his treachery, Srivijaya joined in the intrigue and deceived our envoys to go there. The king of Java heard about this and warned Srivijaya to send the envoys back with ceremony. Since then, envoys and merchants have been obstructed. Thus, the feelings of the various kings have not been made known to us. Only Anan, Champa, Cambodia and Siam have been coming continually since their first missions. End quote. So something had happened to upset the Chinese and make them suspicious of trade at the end of the Hongwu Emperor's reign. But the new emperor struck a more understanding tone to past mistakes by China's neighbours when he sent off his first diplomatic fleet in 1402. Quote, In the time of my father, the various nations who sent missions were all treated with good faith. Those who brought their native products to trade were all allowed to do so. When any of them did not know what to avoid and mistakenly broke the regulations, they were treated leniently in order to win over distant peoples. Now that the world is as one family, it is proper to show to all that we do not discriminate against anyone. The nations who wish to come sincerely with tribute may all do so. You are to inform them about this so that they clearly know my will. End quote. Whatever the motivations, it turned out to be a very important moment in the history of Malacca. It was from this voyage that the first envoys from Malacca travelled to China. Malacca's rise was meteoric, soon recognised as equal to some of the older regional kingdoms. The Malaccan envoys attended banquets at the imperial court and eventually met separately with the emperor. It's likely that this crucial meeting is where the special relationship between the two states took root. During this time, the construction of the treasure fleets was underway in Nanjing. The first voyage set sail in 1405, returning the diplomats from the 1402 mission. The treasure ships were packed with porcelain, silk, precious metals and all sorts of gifts. Their mission was to gain the favour of foreign leaders and to encourage them to acknowledge China's supremacy. The fleet made stops at Champa, Java, Sumatra and Malacca before heading out to the Indian Ocean. A fleet of this scale and ships of this size would have made quite an impression on any port they visited. Just the economic impact of resupplying and maintaining the fleet would have created a mini-boom wherever they went. Trade and diplomacy does seem to have been the priority for Zheng He. Local rulers received lavish gifts and a request to pay tribute to China. Local envoys, once again, joined the fleet for the return trip to China. Just because China didn't use its military muscle on any of these ports doesn't take away the implied threat that the treasure fleets brought with them. They could speak softly because they carried a big stick. Having said that, it's true that in all of Zheng He's voyages, no land was settled in China's name and no permanent fortresses were established. So the claim that the treasure fleets were mainly diplomatic and pacific is fair, up to a point. On the return trip of the first voyage in 1407, that big stick 
came in handy. Zheng He confronted a notorious pirate who had been preying upon regional shipping in the South China Sea for years. They fought a fierce battle near Palembang, the old Srivijayan capital. Some 5,000 pirates were killed. They captured several ships and the pirate leader, who they took back to Nanjing to be executed. The next two voyages generally retraced the same path as the first voyage. Zhang He only went as far as southern China on the second voyage, with another admiral taking the helm for the majority of the voyage. They were establishing the Chinese as a regular presence in the sea lanes. Diplomatic relationships continued to deepen, as everyone became used to what seemed to be the new reality. The treasure fleets visited Sri Lanka on the first two voyages, and had met with local hostility. On the third voyage in 1411, 2,000 Chinese troops landed, took the capital, and captured the king and much of the royal family. They were taken back to China as prisoners, and paraded in front of the emperor. Friendly vassals were installed back in Sri Lanka. So the voyages were not imperial in the sense of seizing land, but given what I opened the episode with, about imagining these spaces differently, particularly maritime zones, power traditionally flowed to the region's strongest naval force, and that's now what the Chinese were. Zhang He and his fleets sought to impose order on a vast maritime network. In some cases, this involved installing friendly vassals by force, as in Sri Lanka, but minimising piracy on the trade routes and intimidating coastal people to not take up piracy was probably more common. Local rulers with diplomatic relationships with China were expected to do their part to help police the sea lanes. The third voyage was also the one that took Paramesvara to China for the first time. Paramesvara seems to have masterfully navigated the choppy diplomatic waters. The voyages came just at the right time for him. He had Siam to the north, that expected tribute, and Majapahit expanding from the south. I imagine that he continued to reinforce to the Chinese emperor Malacca's importance to China. He was their most loyal partner in the Straits because Malacca needed trade and safe sea lanes to survive. Malacca could also act as a buffer between regional rivals Majapahit and Siam, restricting further expansion by either side maintaining the balance of power. Paramesvara was China's man in the straits, protecting China's expanding maritime interests, and China guaranteed Malacca's security in return. This sort of transaction was happening elsewhere too. The voyages were reshaping relationships and power dynamics wherever they went. But we should remember that this was already a connected region, Predominantly Indian, Malay and Arabic sailors and merchants crisscrossed the Indian Ocean and the Far East from Madagascar to Japan. The treasure fleets only added to the overall level of trade and security. The first three voyages especially visited locations already known to the Chinese. The fourth through to the seventh voyages, however, were more ambitious. As well as the established stop-offs in Southeast Asia, the voyages went beyond India's west coast. They visited the Arabian Gulf and eventually the Red Sea and the African coast, all the way down to modern Tanzania. It's from these later missions that we get one of our best sources. Ma Huan was on the 4th, 6th and 7th voyages, and he chronicled the adventures. He gives us detailed descriptions of long-standing 
and emerging cities. The north coast Javanese towns of Tupan and Grezik are popular with regional traders. Ma Huan refers to Grezik as New Village, a port filled with the region's exotic goods and recent Chinese migrants, maybe even some from the earlier voyages. So this was a new Chinese-dominated settlement, getting rich through regional trade. He describes the people's dress and appearance, their food and customs. The spread of the Islamic faith and of the Chinese people is clear in his writings. But as the fleet goes further east to Surabaya and then up the Brantus River to the Majapahit capital, things become less familiar. He described three classes of people. The Chinese, that he referred to as Tang Chinese, possibly referring to the length of time they'd been in Java, or maybe that they were Buddhist. The next class, Muslims from the West, by which he meant anywhere west of China, he describes them as wealthy and numerous. Last, he described the locals as devils and unkempt. He observed that they went shirtless and shoeless, that they ate with their hands and had no spoons or chopsticks, and that they had no beds or chairs, and many people lived on rafts. All men carried daggers from toddlers through to the decrepit elderly. These blades were regularly drawn to settle even minor disputes. He also described rituals where wives and concubines were sacrificed on the funeral pyres of important men. So as late as the 1430s, East Java was still pre-Islamic. The Indian cultural wave and indigenous practices still held sway, but the Muslim and Chinese waves were literally around the corner on the north coast of Java. Islam was only a couple of generations ahead of Christianity's arrival in much of the archipelago. Back in China, the extravagance of the voyages was noticed and being questioned. Some estimates put the price of each voyage at half the annual tax revenue. And for what? Traders would seek out Chinese goods and Chinese markets without the state having to support it. Why continue to sink so much treasure into policing the regional sea lanes and playing diplomatic niceties? And this wasn't the only visionary project the Yongli Emperor had on the go either. At the same time, he was building the Forbidden City in Beijing and the Grand Canal was undergoing significant repair and upgrades. One of the Emperor's prized gifts from these later voyages were giraffes. Apparently, they look quite like a mythical creature from Chinese legends. But as novel and delightful as it must have been for the emperor to have a giraffe to add to his zoo, were the voyages really worth all that investment? This emperor was clearly a big picture kind of guy and remained a supporter of the voyages. But dissenting voices, often conservative Confucians, wanted to restrain lavish spending and return the focus to the homeland, not overseas adventures. They pressured him to prioritise more practical projects, like a northern border wall. While on the sixth voyage in 1424, Zheng He received the news that the emperor had died. He probably knew that that meant the end of the voyages too. But by this time, Southeast Asia had been changed forever. Regional trade and diplomacy had been transformed, with Malacca and several ports on the north coast of Java thriving in the wake of Zheng He's fleets. The increased volume of trade would continue whether it was promoted by Chinese shipping or not. But as it turned out, there was a final encore, and the new emperor sent Zheng He off on a last voyage in 1430. A massive fleet, once again, of 300-plus ships, toured Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean, 
displaying the might and glory of the Ming Empire one last time. Zheng He himself died on the voyage in 1433, marking the end of an extraordinary era in Chinese history. In fact, it was an extraordinary era in world history. After this, China once again withdrew to manage its internal affairs at possibly exactly the wrong time. Asia would have to wait 500 years until another local power, the Japanese Empire of the 20th century, was again capable of projecting power far into the Indian and Pacific Oceans. What would the world look like now if China had continued to be involved in the Indian Ocean? What would the Americas have looked like if an active Chinese navy had learnt of the discovery? Or maybe they would have even got there first. All this is easy to think about in hindsight, but I'd like you to imagine the world as it was seen by the Chinese. They were the centre. China didn't need to seek out the world. They were used to the world coming to them, and for centuries the world continued to come knocking. But it does highlight one of our reoccurring themes, the tug of war between open and closed communities. A big place like China can survive on its own, but in Southeast Asia, successful powers have tended towards openness because that's usually what it took to manage the waves of change reshaping the region. We've already seen this play out several times, open, usually coastal communities, with an appetite for risk versus cautious inland communities, a cosmopolitan outlook versus a fearful and exclusive mindset. It usually involves an established power with a lot to lose, hanging on to what it's got rather than seeking out new opportunities. I can't help thinking of the parallel in our modern world, where a great power with unrivaled naval superiority, the USA, is withdrawing from the world and building walls, and the irony that China is looking outward with its Belt and Road project and imagining the possibilities of a connected world. Connections that will reach throughout the region, over the oceans and into the heart of Europe. Meanwhile, in Europe, Britain is voluntarily cutting ties with its closest neighbours and one of the world's biggest integrated markets. Isolation is not always a bad policy, but one of the lessons of history is that states risk being left behind if they try to shut out the outside world. Having said all that, next time we'll flip this logic on its head and look at some local communities and customs that arguably survived because of their isolation. Before I go, I should point you in the direction of the China History Podcast. Luslow Montgomery did three excellent episodes on Zheng He and the Treasure Fleets, including an episode on all the controversial 1421 Gavin Menzies stuff. I've chosen to steer clear of all that speculation, but if it's something you're interested in, Laszlo covers it pretty well. To get in touch, email anotherhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Facebook, History of Indonesia Podcast. Twitter, at anotherhistpod, A-N-O-T-H-E-R-H-A-S-T-P-O-D, anotherhistpod. Subscribe, rate and review on iTunes. Let people know about the show. And it seems like some of you have been. The audience is steadily building, despite my erratic release schedule. And, um, you know, thank you to the people who have been letting others know about the show. Again, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Ish. Mm-hmm.